On today's episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, we're going to talk about what is to me the most essential coaching skill, and that is the ability to tell stories, to have stories serve your client in the most elegant way possible. You are listening to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, a show devoted to uncovering the systems and the secrets that set the best apart, where you learn how to take your coaching clients to the next level, while you grow the coaching practice of your dreams. So sit back and relax, or sit up and get excited. Either way, you might want to pay attention. This could be important. Of all the essential coaching skills, I think it's pretty clear. It is to me that the ability to tell stories is 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 number one. I mean, maybe it's number two, maybe, maybe rapport, you know, that the client has to always know that you are on their side and that they trust you and that rapport is 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 perhaps paramount. Next to that, however, telling stories is just critical. Now, when I say telling stories, I'm not just telling like waxing yarns for amusement. That's nice. And it's a nice skill to have. Um, and that is not at all what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like the therapeutic metaphor, the, the little, you know, stories that stick in the person's mind that gets the point across in a way that nothing else can. It's interesting to me, at least, that when I teach persuasion skills, particularly sleight of mouth, um, there are 14 different patterns of persuasion in sleight of mouth. One of them is called the metaphor or analogy pattern. But to me, I'll tell you what, if you get that, if you nail a metaphor or analogy, you don't need the other ones because it does the job for you. It, it In the story form, it does the consequence pattern. In the story form, it does the intent pattern. In the story form, it does them all in a way. It it shows the fallacy of the old belief system and it shows you, you know, what the truth is about the new belief system that you want to guide the person to. They are absolutely essential, the essential of most essential coaching skills. Um, you know, it, it's also a kind of interesting thing. I've been doing hypnosis and stuff for a long time. And I was always attracted to Erickson's work, Milton Erickson's work. But before I even know what that was, when I was early days of learning NLP for Tony Robbins, I'd go to his seminars and they were always great, but there was always something, a period of time where he would launch into these stories, he told stories about the, the Brooklyn Dodgers. He told stories about various, you know, his rafting experience down the Grand Canyon or whatever. The stories were always really gripping and there were messages inside them. I knew they were there. You know, there, some of them were blatantly obvious, you know, you know, he'd be using these embedded commands with this change of tone and, you know, so it's pretty obvious, but effective, nevertheless, you know, you knew it was happening, but it was like, okay, that's good. Feed me, feed me. <laughs> it's good stuff. I want it. Um, but a lot of the stories were just these, these gripping, you, you, you on, the edge, on the edge of your seat. And yet the message was really important. And, those last, you know, stories is the way our brains think, right? So if you can capture the person's imagination with a story and give a good message within that, you got it made. You really do. Now, I believe that um, when people were coming to me for quitting smoking and things like that and hypnosis, it's, it's, it's more about 
that. One of the things that we do as coaches, and this is, a, I'm getting a little philosophical here. You know, stop me if you think I'm wrong. Um, I say that facetiously because you can't stop me unless you just t- turn this off, which of course, don't do that. That'd be, that'd be, that'd be wrong. But um, <laughs> for me, you know, hypnosis, people would come for quitting smoking. People would come for weight loss. And while I would endeavor to provide that, of course, you know, of course, I'd also recognize that it's more than that. It's also about discovering something deeper about who they are, that life is a, a journey. It's a journey of self-discovery, whether, whether you like it or not, it's a journey of self-discovery. And if you live long enough and, you know, you'll always be discovering more and more about yourself. Perhaps this is because we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Um, that quote has been around a, a bunch of times. I can't pronounce the gentleman's name that I believe was the first to say it. it's a you know, Pierre Thierhard de Chardonneuse, something like that. I don't know. But it's it, if you know who I'm talking about, then you know what I'm talking about. Um, but he, he's probably the first one, but it's been often repeated. I've heard Deepak Chopra say that. I think there's truth to it. I think there's a lot of truth to that. We are spiritual beings. We are eternal beings having this human experience and we learn lessons from experience. Experience teaches us things. The second best thing to experience is stories. Now, sometimes those stories occur in the form of dreams. You know, we have these dreams. I was thinking this morning as I was having some very interesting dreams that I was, um, when I woke up, I thought about a quote I remember from, oh, Roger, Robert, oh, Lord. Um, he's, he's, he actually wrote a book called Story. He has his, his seminars about storytelling, um, Robert McKee stories his 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 seminars for writing screenplays are legendary in 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 LA and he teaches them all over the world New York I took it in New York London Rio de Janeiro all over the world um but he he once said what's the purpose of dreams he said it's there's they are stories who are designed whose whose purpose is to keep you in bed (laughs) to keep you sleeping um I I think Freud might have had a disagreement with that, but but it is interesting because you know you you do need your rest, and so while you're sleeping there, it gives you something to do. I've had dreams that are really I'm just kind of like watching TV, you know, they're like sitcoms. I'm watching these dreams go by, but they you know they keep in bed. You want to know what comes next. That's the thing about just about stories is you want to know what happens next. So. In my case, when I've been doing hypnosis for these many years, and, you know, by the way, when I say hypnosis, that's my form of coaching. Everyone has a a way of doing coaching that is unique to them or perhaps is a blending of different things that people do. You know, we are all different. Every human being is different. Everybody's coaching practice is different. Mine is a blending of Ericksonian hypnosis, of neuro-linguistic programming, of the coaching I learned from Thomas Leonard, you know, it is a blending of those things. Um, I never took Est. I never took the forum. I never did those things, but pretty sure Thomas Leonard did. And, you know, a lot of things I got from Tony Robbins were, I'm pretty sure, blended with stuff from the forum and Est sensibilities. I know that the, the man who helped um, create the Date with Destiny seminar 
with Tony wasn't just Tony. The guy that helped him create that was deeply steeped in the in the forum stuff. So these philosophies form us and we become who we are. And then people are attracted to us because there's something about what we do and our energies that, you know, draw them to us. You know, our tribe is, you know, drawn by our vibe. That's pretty cool. Our tribe is drawn by our vibe. Yeah, I like that. Um, I'm going to try to remember that. I might have heard it recently, but at any rate, it's, it's, it's true. <laughs> so your stories inform their coaching, you know, so you talk from your own personal experience. I know Milton Erickson did that constantly. He was always saying, you know, when I was a child, you know, one of his great stories, <coughs> I've told you this before. Um, excuse me. I have a little bit of a frog hopping around in my throat here. Um, one of Erickson's famous stories about how, how do you do psychotherapy? Again, stop me if I've told you this before. Um, he was saying, well, I'll tell you how to do psychotherapy. He was, he was surrounded by a bunch of psychotherapists who were asking him this question. You know, how do you do psychotherapy? And he said, well, when I was a child, somewhere circa 1910, 1915, perhaps I was walking home from school and these, those days, you know, mostly there were horses and buggies, you know, people didn't get around by cars, they were invented, but most people didn't use them where I was anyway, trucks occasionally for hauling big things, but mostly it was horses and buggies and was walking home from school one day. And this horse ran by us and ran into this farmer's yard, started drinking out of the farmer's trough and the farmer came out and said get your horse out of here and i said well it's not my horse but i'll make sure he gets back to where he belongs so i led the horse out of the farmer's yard and jumped up on his back and pointed him back in the direction from whence he'd come and said giddy up I'm not sure he said giddy up exactly words to that effect no doubt and and the horse started moving and he said every now and again, the horse would stop and, you know, start eating some flowers or a clover or something along, along the path. And Erickson would just pull his head back up and keep his attention on the road, urge him on. And uh, after a while, the horse turned right in another road and it turned left into a, another farmer's field. And the farmer came out and said, hey, thank you for bringing my horse back. How'd you know where to bring him? And Erickson said, well, I didn't know. I didn't know. But I knew that the horse knew. And all I had to do was keep his attention on the road. And so then he looked at all the psychotherapists and said, and I think that's how you do psychotherapy. Which is interesting because actually he often didn't give the quote unquote moral to the story. You know how Aesop's fables always have, and the moral of the story is share with others or whatever. It'd always be there. Erickson's stories didn't always have those. And I'm not sure you should always provide that kind of summation of the, of the story's meaning to your clients. Sometimes they are better off without knowing because then they're going to keep thinking about it. If you sum up and say this, this is what this meant. This is the lesson you should learn from there. Then they'll just think about that lesson and maybe they'll agree with it. Maybe they won't. But if you don't do that, if you keep them just wondering, why did he tell me that story? 
then their unconscious mind is going to continue kind of chewing on it. You know, they're going to keep thinking about it and there's going to be more cross-referencing that happens in their conscious and other other than conscious mind that that's uh, going to be more effective for them long-term, I think. So over the years when I've been working with people in hypnosis and NLP, it's invariably people come in for a specific issue. It can boil down to like one thing. The person's basically in pain, wants to get out of it. You know, whether the pain is actual pain or whether the pain is a psychological pain or the pain of, uh, I can't quit this drug of cigarettes or, you know, it's a, it's a pain of some kind and they want to get out of it. That's it. That's kind of why they're there. So sometimes, um, if they're there to quit smoking, if you've gotten to that pain threshold, it's like, oh, God, I can't do this anymore. So that's why they've picked up the phone or something's happened. They've gotten a medical report or something. So that's fine. Hypnosis works very, very well for that. And it's remarkably effective for a bunch of those things. Um, and hypnosis is kind of like driving to work in a Formula race car, you know, Formula One race car. It, it, it'll work, but there's a lot more that it can do. You know, there's a lot more that it can do. So Erickson once said, patients become patients because they're out of rapport with their own unconscious mind, right? People become in need of therapy. In other words, patients become patients because they're out of rapport with their own unconscious mind. And so I believe that he meant that people get out of sorts and less than optimally functional and ultimately, therefore, in pain when they strive too hard with their conscious mind and attempt to ignore or override their unconscious mind. Remember Dan Millman talking about a very similar thing in his way of the peaceful warrior stuff. I, I took a workshop from him on a peaceful warrior workshop. We talked about how we have basically three selves, a basic self, a conscious self, and a higher self. And he said, most people are living in their conscious self, trying to ignore their basic self because that's their basic quote unquote bad stuff you know, those urges that make me eat too much chocolate ice cream, you know, at 11 p.m. or whatever. Um, So we've got to quelch that, you know, stamp it out. And while we focus on going into our higher self, we want to get into that higher self stuff. And so that's, that's the important part. And you said, yeah, no, that's not quite true. All of them are important. Your basic self is important, too. It is. And, and it's also kind of like a seventh, seven-year-old doesn't really understand the, the concept of delayed gratification. You know, it wants that ice cream now. You know, you get a big cupcake, it eats the frosting off the top. You know, it's, it's your seven. So if you ignore it for too long, it will throw a tantrum and demand your attention. And then you'll eat the whole carton of ice cream, you know. So we want to have rapport with all of our parts, all of our parts. Carl Jung would have seen this as the recipe for creating the person's shadow, right? Their shadow is the part that we we squish down and say, no, that's the bad part. Hypnosis, I think when employed as a tool for transformation, helps to integrate the shadow elements of the individual. And it's the integration that can be the most important thing. It's the integration of the conscious and the unconscious working together that can be the most important thing. A truth I believe has been known for thousands of years. In the Gnostic Gospels, according to Thomas, Jesus is quoted as saying the following. He said, if you bring forth that is within you, if you, how did it go? If you bring forth that, 
if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring that forth, it will destroy you. Let me tell you a story about that. Um, this is from Jungian psychology. There's a story about a, a uh, woodcutter, young guy. He was work went in his father's business. You know, he's like seventeen. Went in his father's business of woodcutting, and they, and he wanted this dream to be a, a doctor. He wanted to go into the city and and study medicine and be a doctor. But um, you know, they were kind of poor woodcutters, so he didn't have a ton of money. So he went to school for a semester, but then he had to come back and he was, you know, back in the forest cutting cutting wood. And one day he. Um, he was cutting wood and, and uh, he, he broke his axe. And, um, and so that was discouraging. And he got somehow very exhausted, felt very, very sleepy. And he, he sort of laid back against this massive tree, like the big old, old tree in the forest. And he sort of fell asleep there. And he woke up and he heard this sound, this, this voice coming from the roots of this tree. And so he digs down and he finds this, this package, this wrapped up package, and he pulls out this, this uh, lamp or jar or jug of some kind. It's a jug, I think. And, and he opens the top and this just genie pops out. It's not a genie in this case. It's, uh, it's, um, the god Neptune. I should look it up before I start telling these stories, but it was, it was like that as a God Neptune. And, and, um, and he, and, and he's really pissed because he's been trapped in this bottle for all this time. And he says, okay, uh, thanks for letting me out. But now, because I'm so mad, I'm going to have to, to kill you. And he says, well, hold on, hold on. He, he, not so fast. I don't, how you couldn't, you're so big and strong. You could possibly be in this bottle. I, it's, I don't even believe you. You can't be trapped in this bottle. How'd you get inside this tiny little bottle? It's impossible. He said, I'll show you. And he got back inside the bottle quickly. The kid put the cap back on, screwed it on tight. Logical, of course. And yeah, I'm sure you'd have done the same thing. And so then, you know, this, this guy is like uh, saying, okay, okay. Tell you what. Um, let me out of the bottle and I won't kill you. And in fact, I'll, I'll give you a special um, magic rag, special magic rag. And it sounded like a good deal, I guess. So the kid said, okay, magic rag sounds good. And, and, and no killing, right? So no killing. So he, he lets him out of the, out of the bottle for the second time. And true to his word, um, Neptune or Mercury, whoever this God was, um, did not kill the, the kid and he, and he gave him a, a magic rag. And, and um, so he wiped his broken ax with this magic rag. And not only did it mend itself, it turned into solid silver, which was really valuable back then. So he took this solid silver ax into town and sold it for like a thousand guineas or something like that. I, I don't know, but it was a lot of money in those days, especially. And um, so he was able to go through medical school based on this uh, fortune and he became a very famous doctor. So that's that, that story illustrates what Jesus said in the Gnostic gospels, which is if you bring forth that, what is within you. So this, this 
Mercury, this God, Mercury, I think it was Mercury, this God that is, is buried inside the roots. That's, that's symbolic for the unconscious. You bring it out, you bring it forth. Um, if you don't, it, it might kill you. You know, I'm going to kill you. But if you, you know, bring it forth in a good way, it can, it can totally save you, you know, transform you. The whole notion of Jungian psychology is transformation. I'm using the word trance, kind of emphasizing that part because I, I think of it that way. Transformation. Hypnosis helps with that. But the idea of transformation, the idea of, of Jungian psychology is that we bring forth this uh, individuation. You become that you were meant to be on the planet through the process of individuation. And sometimes in so doing, people might not like that very much. They think, oh, no, you should stay the way that I liked you before when, you know, you you did what I told you and, you know, you met certain criteria that were important to me. Um, So to them, it seems like you're committing a crime. It's like what my therapist once called it, you're committing the crime of your own uniqueness, right? So you become that who you are meant to be, whether other people like it or not. Right? So, yeah, the transformation, the individuation becoming who you are. So for me, that idea of using hypnosis, using coaching to help a person become who they are fully and they're not just, not just achieving an outcome, right? They're not just saying I'm going to become a, a, a successful coach in my own practice. They're not just becoming, you know, meeting a goal of losing 20 pounds or 50 pounds or whatever. They're not just meeting a goal of, you know, whatever. They're, they're, they're transforming into their right person, their right being that they're generating, they're becoming generative. So the generative nature of Ericksonian hypnosis is where stories become so rich and full. Because again, unlike the teaching tales of Aesop, where you say, okay, now this is the moral of the story. Um, in Erickson's stuff, he, he would just tell these stories and people would sometimes take a long time to figure out, maybe even not even consciously ever, would they figure out exactly what he meant by that? Exactly what he was doing by that. So, um, yeah. Let me tell you a story about Erickson. So Erickson often, like I said, would tell these stories about his own life. His own life and, and other other clients of his. He would tell stories like, well, once I had a client who. Um, but what I find really, truly fascinating about Erickson's work, as opposed to, for instance, um, uh, Freud is that the old model, I think the kind of old model of therapy um, kind of coaching perhaps is to say, okay, there, there's a problem. There's a pain. There's a problem. There's something we need to fix. Something's not working. I need it to work. What's the problem. And we, we begin to, you know, find ways of solving the problems and then say, okay, great, we're done. And so maybe they come in for a a session. Maybe they come in for, you know, two sessions 
or, or um, even a month of sessions, but it's like they've, they've solved the problem. Thank you very much. Um, hopefully you'll get some referrals out of the deal, you know, but um, that was the whole model, wasn't it? Like Freudian times that there's a, there's a dysfunction, there's an illness, there's a psychosis, there's a problem of some kind that we need to fix. And if we can figure out where this problem came from, you know, if you were just not toilet trained, right. Or, you know, something, and we can figure it out the problem. We can fix you right up and you'll be okay. That was the kind of deal. Um, I think we go much further than that these days when it's done properly, when we're working uh, at our best with folks is we discover who we are really. And we let that out. We let that out. We look for how we can do that. And through the, when we tell a story, then the person has to figure that out for themselves. And sometimes it even surprises us how they go with that. I kind of find it, I kind of find it interesting. I find it kind of interesting. That's what I meant to say. I find it kind of interesting that, you know, often when people think of Ericksonian hypnosis, they think of Erickson zoning people down and putting them into deep trance. And of course, he had the ability to do that. And a lot of times he just told stories and people would be in a trance, although they wouldn't be in a very deep one. They'd be sitting there with their eyes open, thinking they're just listening to this guy tell a story, but it had meaning to it. And certainly the way he told the story, it was as as effective as at, at capturing their attention as any sort of, you know, watching the watch go back and forth or that, braid fascination device where they get transfixed by this, you know, swirling um, optical illusion thing, but he would tell stories and people wouldn't know that he was doing anything. Like for instance, he, he had polio, right? I, I don't know if you know Erickson's story, um, but he had polio as a child. He was uh, about 17 years old when he was stricken with polio and he was really supposed to die. His Teachers, parents, parents, doctors, the, the doctors that came out to the house um, said, yeah, nothing we can do for him. He's going to die. <laughs> and he didn't. And that's a very interesting um, story unto itself. But Erickson would sometimes tell the story about that experience that he had um, to his patients. And so I'm going to read to you a section of him, you know, his writings where he describes this. Now he is telling this to a client, right? So imagine that you are talking with your client and, and you say, Oh, well, so you're having trouble being motivated. Um, so you're, you want to do this thing. You want to start this uh, website. You want to start this business. You have trouble being motivated. Okay. That's very interesting. You know, when I was a child, <laughs> I had polio. Um, so anyway, imagine imagine telling a story that'd be like kind of like this. So this is Erickson's story. He said, you know, we learn so much at a conscious level, and then we forget what we learn and just use the skill. You see, I had a terrific advantage over others when I was a child. I had polio, and I was totally paralyzed. And the inflammation was so great that I had sensory paralysis too. 
I could move my eyes and my hearing was undisturbed. I got very lonesome lying in bed, unable to move anything except my eyeballs. I was quarantined on the farm with seven sisters, one brother, two parents, and a practical nurse. And how could I entertain myself? I started watching people in my environment. I soon learned that my sisters could say no when they meant yes, and they could say yes and mean no at the same time. They could offer another sister an apple and hold it back. And I began studying nonverbal language and body language. I had a baby sister who had begun to learn to creep, would learn, have to learn to stand up and walk. And you can imagine the intensity with which I watched as my baby sister grew from creeping to learning how to stand up. And you don't know how you learn to stand up. You don't even know how you walked. You can think that you can walk in a straight line six blocks with no pedestrian or vehicular traffic. You don't know that you couldn't walk in a straight line at a steady pace. You don't know what to do when you walk. You don't know what you do when you do walk. You don't know how you learn to stand up. You learned by reaching up your hand and pulling yourself up, put pressure on your hands, and by accident, you discovered that you could put weight on your feet. It's an awfully complicated thing because your knees would give way, and then when your knees would keep straight, your hips would give way, and then you'd get your feet crossed, and you couldn't stand up because both your knees and your hips would give way. Your feet were crossed, and soon you learned to get a wide stance, a wide brace, feet far apart, and you'd pull yourself up, and you'd have a job of learning how to keep your knees straight one at a time. And as soon as you learn that, you have to learn how to give your attention to keeping your hips straight. And then you found out that you had to give some attention to keep your hips straight and knees straight at the same time and the feet far apart. Finally, you could stand having your feet far apart resting on your hands. Then came the lesson in three stages. You distribute your weight on one hand and your two feet. This hand does not support you at all. Just raise your left hand. And honestly, hard work allowing you to learn to stand straight, your hips straight, your knees straight, feet far apart, this right hand pressing down hard. Then you discover how to alter your body balance. You alter your body balance by turning your head up, turning your body. You have to learn to coordinate the tilting of the head, all alterations of your body balance as you move your hand, your head, your shoulders, your body. And then finally, and you learned it all over again with the other hand, comes a terribly hard job of learning to have both hands up, then moving your hands in all directions and depend on the two solid bases of your feet far apart and keeping your hips straight, your knees straight, keeping your mind's attention so divided that you can attend to your arms, your knees, your hips, your left arm, your right hand. And you finally we had enough skill. You tried balancing on one foot. That was a hell of a job because you need to be able to do that to walk. How do you 
Hold your entire body, keeping your hips straight, your knees straight, feeling hand movement, head movement, body movement, one foot ahead and alter your body's center of gravity, your knees bent and you sat down. You could sit down and get back up and try it again. And finally, you learn how to move one foot ahead and took a step and it seemed to be good. So you repeated it. It seemed so good. And then the third step with the same foot and you toppled. And it took you a while to alternate left, right, right, left, left, right. And then when you swing your arms, turn your head, look to the left, you know, keeping the knees straight. I, it's just an example of how he would sometimes tell these stories that could go on and on in vicious detail, meaningless, seeming like, oh, I don't really need to know all this. Um, but he would do that. And the person would just be transfixed. I don't know if you or you felt like listening to the story, but he would talk this while, while kind of being in a bit of a trance himself. The way his his, his daughter um, Betty Alice ex, ex, uh, talked about it. He said that she he would he would sort of look at the edge of the rug and sort of rock back and forth and go into this little trance himself. And every now and then again, he'd look up at you. You know, and these f- eyes would fix on you and go like, ooh. So you'd, you'd always be, you know, watching and you'd be in this trance, watching him in this trance. But the story I think is fascinating because he starts off by saying, I had a terrific advantage about learning because I had polio. Wow, boy, I wish I had polio. <laughs> I wish I had had that advantage. Poor me. I didn't have those big advantages of that horrible disease. You know, I think it's fascinating how we can say that because people then go, like, what? Right? A little bit of a pattern interrupt in itself, isn't it? Say, that's an advantage. And yet it is. And when you stop and think about it, why is it an advantage? Because it forced him to do these things, forced him to observe so closely the other than conscious communication that's what Dave Dobson calls it, the body language communication, the nonverbal communication. Um, you know, f- f- he was this genius kind of brain inside this paralyzed body. So he just kept his, you know, self entertained by observing so very closely and then be able to utilize that. So it was, it was, he says there's an advantage to put himself in that situation. So when you say that to somebody, you know, that you have an advantage, you're, you're saying that a disability that can give you this advantage, um, that learning is one of the best forms of entertainment. You know, is how can I entertain myself? Fellas, that is by, by, by learning and growing, it's fun, it's entertaining. He talks about the actual process of learning to stand up as a kinesthetic awareness. The listener is able to focus on his own internal kinesthetic sense. You know, and trying something new takes time. And we have to practice different things and you never quit, you know. That's the thing about learning to walk. You know, he modeled his baby sister like that. He was learning to walk for himself because he had polio. So he's learning to walk for a second time by modeling this expert in it, you know, this baby who's learning to go from crawling to standing to do it. And he was learning how to do that for himself, right? We model experts. 
we follow the role models of somebody who's gone before. Tony Robbins used to say, success leaves clues. You know, so you find that role model, even if it's an infant child who has some, got some ability that you want to learn. This early learning set, when you tell a story like that, this early learning set helps the person get to a place of like, oh, yes, I, I know this experience. I've done this before in my life. I've learned to walk. I know how to do these things. L- learning to you know create this new success in my life is just like that. It's one step at a time. Left foot, right foot, repeat, right? It's one step at a time. I, you know, so this story, I'm sort of perhaps giving bits of it away here, but that's what these stories do. You help them recognize that they have the ability in them already. You're helping them to bring it out within them through this story that you're telling. Now, Erickson had thousands of stories, as do you. I was walking with, I was talking with, sorry, um, a class of mine that I was teaching on Ericksonian hypnosis. I call it Neo-Ericksonian hypnosis because I never met Erickson. I met his wife and his daughter. And I studied with a lot of the people that studied with him, but I, I never met the man. I, I never got certified. I don't think anybody ever got certified by him as an Ericksonian. I don't think that happened by, with anybody. But um any rate, the idea is that when I was teaching this storytelling section in Ericksonian hypnosis for my Neo-Erickson hypnosis section, there were some people who were, you know, pretty astute at being able to do it, probably better than I am. And then there are others who had this belief that say, oh, I, I can't, I can't tell stories. I, I can't do metaphors. I can't think metaphorically. I can't think metaphorically. And I said, well, I don't want to repeat what I said. I, I, I used an impolite word. It started, it was, um, use the letters BS. So, um, okay. It was a belief system. I said, that's just a belief system. So that's just, but because the fact of the matter is we, we tell, we, our brains think of stories. You do tell stories. You story, tell stories all the time. If you're in a conversation with someone and they said, well, you know, I was walking down the street the other day and I saw this, um, this bear walk across the street. This probably doesn't happen to you very often, but I, I did. I was walking on the street and I saw a bear um, walking the other direction. I was glad he was going the other direction. So I stopped walking and just waited for him to cross. And he is a pretty substantial looking beast. Um, black bears around these parts don't really much care about human beings. They, they want you know something to eat, but they don't, thankfully, <laughs> eat humans very often. I don't think ever. Um, so, you know, he just was on his, on his way, mind his own business, but I didn't want to necessarily draw his attention. So I tell you a story like that, then you go like, oh, wow, yeah, it happened to me once too. I was in this place and I saw this thing. And, you know, so you relate a story that happened to you. Maybe you were in a New York City subway. You saw a rat. I don't know. But it's, you know, there's similarity. There's similar things that pop up in your mind. You think, oh, yeah, it was, this happened to me once. Oh, yeah, it happened to me once. You know, so these are similar things. Those in themselves are stories, aren't they? They may not be particularly meaningful in a therapeutic sense, but they might be depending on how you tell it and what circumstance you tell it. But we think in stories, we think metaphors as well. Think about this for a moment. If I said to you, 
I've discovered a new fruit. I, I went to the grocery store and um, I discovered this brand new fruit I'd never seen before. It was called a, a, a mogli fruit, a mogli fruit. And I took it home and it was absolutely delicious. I'm, I'm so thrilled with my new discovery. And you went like, whoa, I've never heard of that before. What's a mogli fruit? What would I do? I would go and start saying, well, it's a lot like a banana. It's like a banana. So that's what? It's an analogy. It's a story. It's a, it's a representation. It's a lot like a banana in, because it's, it's sweet like a banana and kind of has that kind of texture to it. But the sweetness is, is, is a lot sharper and juicier, more like, uh, maybe like a citrus fruit, like an orange. So when you bite into it, you get this, this burst of juicy juiciness, but it's still got the texture like a banana and it's, it's bright purple. I'm making this up. I have no such thing, but I would, I would use some sort of analogy. It's like this. It's like that. It's different than this. So that's what we do. So one of the ways you can practice telling stories is just to practice that. So what is this like? Think of a situation that the client has, you know, they want to quit smoking. I want to start a business. I want to lose 20 pounds. What's that like? What is that like? And think of a metaphorical representation of that or a situation in life that you've had to overcome a challenge of some kind. It doesn't necessarily have to be the same challenge. It's a challenge that seems daunting, seems like you couldn't do it, but you learned to do it one step at a time right? And tell your stories and help them to come across, um, overcome their obstacles by thinking outside the nine dots, which by the way, is a metaphor. You know, thinking outside the box, thinking outside the, the nine dots is, is a metaphor. Erickson often would do that sort of thing. He would, and so would Dave Dobson, by the way, um, ha- have these little games where you literally have to think outside the the box to solve it. You got to think differently. I think it was Einstein that said that this, the type of, you know, thinking that gets, gets you into the problem is not going to get you out of it. You have to change the way you think, change the story. One of the things I believe makes coaching so useful is that people continue at it. They stay focused. They still work. They have that persistence that gets them to the finish line. Um, because they're going to meet with you every week. They're going to meet with you every week for the next six months or whatever the coaching process is. So it's got magic in it, if nothing else, for that. And I'd like to make sure that people stay plugged in and stay focused and stay um, committed along the way. And so I tell stories about times that they've done that. Like, for instance, the, I tell this story about the uh, the shortest commencement address ever. Um, at least I think probably it's called that. It's the, by Winston Churchill soon after World War II was, was completed. And he was, I speak, think, speaking at Oxford. And he was the, you know, the main speaker at this graduation. And um, the first speaker had gotten up and been quite long-winded and spoke for a long time, an hour, let's just say, maybe two. And finally, when it came to be, you know, for Winston Churchill to get up. He was known for his great eloquence on the radio, kept, you know, Britain plugged in and, and motivated throughout the war. Um, 
so they were expecting a great speech because he was good at giving them. And he gets up and he steps to the microphone and he says, never, 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 never quit. And he goes and sits back down again. And most people hadn't even, uh, you know, gotten settled in their chairs, but, you know, it's okay. We're going to get ready to listen to Winston Churchill. And he was already done. Pretty impactful. Sometimes the brevity of it is very, very good. So sometimes I'll tell that story and then I'll tell us another story that is um, perhaps not a standalone story, but I make it so. It's from a book called uh, The Journeys of Socrates by Dan Millman. If you're unfamiliar with Dan, Dan Millman's work, he's, he's a wonderful author, um, has this wonderful kind of character he's developed called uh, Socrates in many of his books, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior, chief among them. You might have seen the Peaceful Warrior movie or read the book. Um, at any rate, there's the character Socrates. He, he has a backstory, um, and, and it's quite elaborate. So there's a whole book about it. So obviously I'm not going to tell you the whole thing, but um, Socrates apparently is a Jewish fella coming over from Russia when he settled in uh, the Bay Area. Or, uh, yeah, Berkeley, Bay Area. Um, but the backstory is that he, when he was in Russia, you know, a long time ago in the teens or so, he was an old man when Dan met him in the 60s or 70s. But um, he had been living in a village uh, and the Russian army had done this pogrom. I think that's the way you pronounce it, pogrom, pogrom, where they came in and they, uh, you know, rough, ran roughshod and killed a lot of the men and raped a lot of the women and kidnapped a lot of the people. And, and so um, Socrates, is, his name isn't actually Socrates. That was a nickname that Dan gave him. So I'm not sure what his name actually was. Um, but the character Socrates, his wife was murdered. His daughter was, um, was kidnapped and he was left for dead, although he, he didn't die. And um, he, he recovered and vowed, after burying his wife to to find his daughter and to get revenge on these people that had done this terrible thing. And so the story goes that he went off and studied with lots of different martial artists. And that's how he became this, you know, peaceful warrior that eventually taught Dan Millman, all the things in the book, the way of the peaceful warrior. Um, but along the way, before this story concludes in the journeys of Socrates in this particular book, he is studying with one of these, you know, master kung fu artists or something he's gone to various places you know india tibet whatever and so he has found this this man who's who's a, you know world renowned for this great master kung fu artist or something and he's he's found him and he's living with him in his um, bungalow on the slopes of this mountain in tibet maybe let's say and uh, part of their training every day is to run up this mountain. And, you know, particularly at the beginning of his training, it was very, very difficult. It was a very steep mountain. And, and um, his teacher, I, I imagine him looking kind of like Yoda, but I'm sure he didn't. Um, but I imagine him like that. You know, he was very spry and although ageless, um, seemed to, you know, have boundless energy that he was able to just sort of, channel from the earth kind of thing. And so um, 
Socrates was running, trying to run, but he's so tired. So maybe even been carrying a backpack with filled with stones or something to give him extra strength. Um, and he, he just said, oh, I can't go on. I can't go on. And and the, the little Yoda teacher person came over to him and said, you can quit as often as you want. Now, when I tell a story like this in, in a session with somebody, I'm generally at this point right now looking at them and pointing my finger at them and saying that Yoda said this to Socrates, but this of course is me saying it to them, but in the story form. So he said that the, the little Yoda fellow looked at him and said, you can quit as often as you want, but keep your feet moving. And that's where I'll leave it with you today. Thank you very much for listening. We're closing in on our 100th broadcast, and we're going to be switching over, not switching over, we're going to be adding a video component to these websites, these podcasts soon. We have it already in progress. You can listen to the same podcast we've done. We're just making them uh, videos. So you won't actually see videos, not yet, not for a while, but you can listen to them on YouTube and see um, the pictures of the people that I'm talking to, at least to see their, their headshots as I'm speaking to them over on YouTube. So check out this Essential Coaching Skills podcast on YouTube and tell your friends and neighbors. Thanks a lot for tuning in and see you soon. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for joining me. If you want any more information about today's show, please visit our website at www.essentialcoachingskills.com. Be sure to tune in again next week for our next episode and discover even more about the systems and the secrets that set the best apart.